Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. 2019 was the year that the Our Care, Our Choice Act became available for CIDA patients right here in the islands. And today we're going to talk a little bit about what that first year so far, it hasn't even been a year, what those statistics look like, what this act is about, and what are some of the things that we've learned over the last several months that might help us as we move forward in implementation of this and how we figure out ways that we can help give a choice to the patients right here in the islands. So joining me, I have Dr. Chuck Miller right here in the studio, and he has been in practice almost four decades, just to age you just a little bit. 30 years in the Army in various capacities, Chief of Oncology, Chief of Medicine, stationed both here and in Germany, and then also nine years at Kaiser Permanente as the as a hematology oncology practitioner. Now, you were one of the main people who was who were in charge of trying to really help promote the option of this act to people in Hawaii. We also have Samantha Trad. She is the Hawaii State Director of Compassion and Choices. So we are going to be talking today about what has happened thus far. Has anyone actually acquired prescriptions for this particular medication? And if so, what has occurred after that? Now, my own personal experience is that I had a patient ask about it they didn't meet one of the initial criteria, which was to have a terminal illness. So I've had a lot of patients ask me questions, but I have not yet had someone who meets all the criteria. So I want to thank both Samantha calling in from from the neighbor island of Maui and also uh, Dr. Miller here right in the studio. We're going to talk a little bit about what some of the criteria are and what has the experience been thus far. So thank you for both of you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Miller, you've had many years of experience as an oncologist, but this particular situation was a personal one. Can you tell me a little more about what made you very enthusiastic about this Our Care, Our Choice Act? Well, over, as you said, 39 years of taking care of cancer patients, most of whom die um, throughout my career, I've had patients come to me and ask, just, doctor, can, can you help me? I just want this to stop. I want it to end. Um, and I have, uh, throughout my career, I felt that it was the patient's right to have that choice. Um, Oregon has been doing this for 20 years, but, uh, nonetheless, uh, it, took, what, almost 20 years to get it passed here in Hawaii from uh, Governor Cayetano's first, uh, the recommendation from his blue blue panel uh, committee. Anyway, um, these, first of all, medical aid and dying is not for everyone, but those patients who request it, they know why deep inside they want to do this and they know when they are ready Um, and it's been uh, actually very satisfying to be able to help patients who request uh, medical aid in dying. So now 
one thing you mentioned that, that bears repeating is that this is not for everyone. It's not meant to be something that everyone has to take part in. This is meant to be for those who choose and who meet certain criteria that they could have this as an option. That's true. Samantha, do you know what some of the criteria are that somebody would need to meet in order to qualify for this? Yes, a patient needs to be terminally diagnosed as being terminally ill with six months or less to live. Uh, they need to be an adult who is mentally capable of making medical decisions. And in Hawaii, there is a minimum 20-day waiting period between oral requests. So a patient has to make two oral requests and one written request. The patient also has three different mental health evaluations. So Hawaii is actually the only authorized state that requires that a mental health assessment be done for everyone in order to qualify for medical aid in dying. And um, I think it's interesting to know, you know, Hawaii is one of many states now that have authorized medical aid in dying. Oregon was the first state 22 years ago. And the majority of the medical aid in dying laws have been modeled after Oregon, and now there are nine states in Washington, D.C., who have all authorized medical aid in dying. In fact, this year, there's going to be three states where the law goes into effect. Hawaii was the first one in January. New Jersey's law just went into effect on August 1st, and um, Maine's law will go into effect in September. So now that's interesting, Samantha. You mentioned in particular that Hawaii is the only one that requires a mental health assessment. Was that ever part of any other state's requirements? No. In other states, it's optional. So if the, the main physician, we call them the attending physician, if they think that there needs to be an, a mental health assessment done to make sure that the patient is mentally capable, then they could refer the patient to a psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, it, that's how it is in California, for example. In Hawaii, uh, it is required. And um, I say it's a third mental health assessment because both the attending physician, which is the main physician who will write the prescription if the patient qualifies, and the consulting physician also evaluate for mental health. So that's interesting, Dr. Miller. When you think of your many years of practice, do you think there is a role for mandating the mental health assessment? Is that going to help make sure that somebody who might be depressed or who might have some other condition that could preclude them from being able to make this choice, is that another protective way to make sure that this act is, is used appropriately? No. That's my personal opinion. I, as Samantha has kind of said, you know, as a physician, and, and you know this yourself, as a physician, every time you have an interaction with a patient, you are making an assessment of their mental status, their, their mental abilities uh, to, to choose. And... Um, the the requirement for a third provider to evaluate these patients, in my mind, uh, is redundant, not necessary. Um, it's, you know, uh, and it's, I, I, I think the only reason 
I would say it uh, it helped get the bill passed is it satisfied some concerns in the legislature that still had some ambivalence about passing this law. What were some of those concerns? Um, abuse. Abuse of um, getting rid of, of grandpa or grandma. Just, um, it, you know, the the, the sad think, thing about this well, is that... Maybe, yeah, I'm it, sorry, Dr. Miller. Go ahead. The sad thing about this just, is it's not, you know, every other state, there's never been any documentation of coercion or abuse or um, anything like that. It's just the opponents want to use that. Go ahead, Sam. I'm sorry. Sure. I, w- I was just going to say that, um, you know, I think that safeguards are really important. And I think the problem is sometimes those safeguards, which are meant to be speed bump, turn into roadblocks. And so that, you know, that's what we're, what we're evaluating to figure out how can we make sure that people who are using the law because they are suffering, they are terminally ill, they understand the decision they're making, and, you know, they have six months or less to live, and, and they just want to end their suffering. How do we make sure that those people are able to access this option uh, and, you know, and make sure all the safeguards are in place? So, um so that's all part of the implementation process. Um, I will say the Hawaii Psychological Association at their conference last year had an entire session um, all about the mental health capacity assessment uh, for all of their, their psychologists, which was wonderful to help educate them and make sure that they were prepared and you know, able to help meet the needs of patients who might need that mental health assessment. Well, and I think what I'm hearing from both of you is that it was done to help make sure that the bill got passed. And in fact, if there is some sense that this is what has allowed people to be able to make that choice, that in the initial implementation it was required, and there might be a change to that in the future. If it's deemed that this is no longer necessary, maybe we will have a situation where it becomes optional like it is in other states like California. Let me just give you personal experience from my first six months of treating patients. I've seen 28 patients referred to me. Um, Five of them died because they didn't make the 20-day cut off. And I think uh, perhaps Sam can talk about this in more detail, but uh, Oregon just recently did an amendment to their aid in dying law that allows the attending physician to waive the waiting period if he, in his clinical judgment, if he believes the patient won't last that long. And I, that's something I would like to see, hopefully, uh, come about in Hawaii. Not, not to change, not even to change the the waiting time, but to allow the physician to say, you know, this patient is not going to make twenty days, so that you can still provide the patient what they are asking for, their choice. And, um, and I hope that comes to pass. Well, and Samantha, it certainly sounds like if an amendment was passed, 
in another state, potentially, we could have that passed here as well. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Chuck Miller and Samantha Trout on the line as the Hawaii State Director of Compassion and Choices. And we're talking today about what's happened in the last six months with the Our Choice, Our Care Act. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the specifics, how many people requested a prescription, how many people used it, and if there are any other barriers that have come up that maybe were not anticipated prior to implementation of this act. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Chuck Miller. He is a practicing hematology oncologist for 40, almost 40 years, and he has been helping to really pass the Our Choice, Our Care Act that was implemented as of January 1st of this year and really helped be one of the physicians who are really helping those folks who make this choice to utilize this ability that they have. Also, we have on the line Samantha Trad, the Hawaii State Director of Compassion and Choices. She's called in from Maui to help us understand a little bit more about what this bill has done for the people here in Hawaii and what are the ideas of how this has been implemented in other states. This is 2019. We are not the only state that has allowed for this to be implemented. In August, New Jersey also joined us, and in September, Maine will join us in this process as well. So right before the break, we were talking a little bit about the mental health assessment requirement and the 20-day duration of time that is required in between making a request, whether it be oral and then subsequently making written requests of this medication. And right before the break, Dr. Miller, you mentioned some people may not even actually be able to survive that full 20 days. So Oregon, for example, made an amendment that said if the physician involved thinks that there may be a need for this medication sooner than that 20 days, your thoughts and hopes like they did in Oregon was to maybe make an amendment to allow that to take place. You did mention that you've you've had people ask you for this prescription. And in the past year, Hawaii has some statistics on how many people have asked and how many people have received prescriptions. What are some of those rates? I mean, I think in general, there were a thought that a lot of people would request prescriptions. Have there been a sudden surge of prescription requests or is this kind of what we expected? Um, Well, there's there's I can talk from two different points of view. I can talk from the report from the Department of Health which dates from January 1st until the end of May, May 31st. Um, They reported eight patients had prescriptions written for them. Um, Three of those patients died by ingesting the medication. Um, Several patients of that group died of their disease before they were 
uh, ingested the medication. And that's the state report. I can tell you from from my experience with Kaiser is that we got, in the first 30 days, we got eight requests. Um, out of that first 30 days, one patient died uh, before the 20-day waiting period was, uh, I mean, and, and so that's, that's the other thing, Dr. Kozak. I mean, it's, when I go out and see these patients, it's really obvious if they're going to make the 20 days or not. Um, so one didn't. Um, three of them got prescriptions. Uh, two of them ingested the medication and the others still have their medication in house. Usually, it's kept in the refrigerator. They they they're they're <clears throat> uh, given uh, not rules, but given advice on how to keep it safe and store it. And um, one, uh, you know, it's it's the patient will decide when they are ready to end their life. Now, you mentioned having the medicine available. What medications are being prescribed? Um, I, I, I'm not sure whether you really want me to say that over the broadcast. I can do that. Are there more than one medication yes, prescribed? It's a, it's, a, it's a combination. It's a combination. The, the, the original uh, medication that was used in Oregon when it started out was Secanol, Secobarbital. That had become, uh, over the last several years, ridiculously expensive, $5,000 for 100 pills. So um, the, uh, it was, I, and Samantha, you can help me out here. I believe that the combination was developed by physicians in Oregon. It is called DDMP-2. It's the second iteration of this DDMP. And mm-hmm. these four drugs are mixed together as powders, and they're given to the patient in a glass vial. Normally, the patient then, when he makes the decision, he or she makes the decision, they will pour four to six ounces of water into the powder mix and drink it. Well, the goal is to drink it as quickly as possible. The quicker you drink it, the quicker you will fall asleep and die. Um, the thing we, the thing I have to tell these patients, you don't sip this thing, because what can happen is the patient, if he's just sipping it, will fall asleep before they finish it, and that's not good. That could be a problem. It may not have their desired effect. Right. Okay. We don't have to so, mention the exact I'll, names on air, but I was just going to say, yeah, there are a few different um, combinations that uh, physicians have been prescribing, and it's 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 exactly like Dr. Miller said: a patient will drink the medication and fall asleep um, and die peacefully in their sleep. And that duration of time from when they ingest the medication to when that occurs is approximately how long? Okay, I can give you medians or means. Um, Falling asleep 15 to 30 minutes. 
dying within one to maybe as long as three hours. So on average, on you know, average. that's and that may not be the same for everyone's experience, but in general, that may be what has transpired thus far in your experience. And so the key point that I think both of you mentioned is that if done following the instructions, the goal is that someone would pass away peacefully. And that, I think, is the ultimate goal that anyone would want in their life, Mm -hmm. regardless of whatever the circumstances are, that that would be something that would occur without any suffering. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Chuck Miller and Samantha Trout on the line from Compassion and Choices. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the diagnoses that some of the individuals have had and any other experience that we've had so far in this first several months. I think we mentioned July through the report lasted until the end of May. So we'll talk some more about the specifics on these individual cases, and we'll be right back after this quick break. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today I am here with Dr. Chuck Miller, who is an oncologist and with almost 40 years of experience, and Samantha Trad, the Hawaii State Director of Compassion and Choices. And we're talking about the Department of Health report on the 2019 experience of the Our Care, Our Choice Act. And it started in January 1st, and this report lasted until the end of May, May 31st to be particular, and we're talking about what were some of the indications and numbers of people who might have requested prescriptions and how has that occurred in our state thus far. So right before the break, we were talking a little bit about how this would take place. Someone would get these prescribed medications. They would be put into a powder when and if the patient chose to use it. They would mix that with some other type of liquid and then quickly ingest it. The idea being they would fall asleep and they would pass peacefully within anywhere from 15, 20 minutes to several hours, depending on the circumstances for the individual. Now, at the top of the show, we talked about who would qualify. Someone would have to be an adult. They would have to have a terminal illness. They would have to be able to physically ingest this themselves. They would need to go through a certain rule process of putting in an oral request, telling their doctor, I want this, and then subsequently another oral request, and then a written request. And in Hawaii, we have a unique requirement that they have a mental health assessment. In addition to having a primary attending and a consulting attendant agree that they were appropriate to utilize this particular process. Now, there were some concerns I know that took place earlier before the act was was actually agreed upon that had to do with people who might have conditions that might not be considered terminal or other sorts of issues. But when we look at the statistics of who has used this thus far, we have found people of certain diagnoses. And Dr. Miller, you've got experience with this. What diagnoses have you been able to treat with this particular process? Well, let me let me expand it a little bit beyond that, just treating. 
of the 28 referrals we had, um, the vast majority have been cancer patients, um, many, many different kinds of cancer patients, uh, many, many different kinds of cancer, sorry. Um, in addition, now I'm talking about my experience with Kaiser. In addition, we had one patient with ALS. We had uh, one patient with a severe uh, Parkinson's disease. Uh, I was referred a patient with end-stage uh, COPD, end-stage... Uh, emphysema. Yeah, emphysema. Breathing problems, yes. okay. Um, and there was a... Um, there was a request, and I haven't seen the patient yet, from a patient who has end-stage heart failure. But the vast majority of this is cancer. I mean, and that, that matches the experience in other states, too. Samantha, have you heard or seen the statistics from some of the other states and where the majority yeah. of their individuals who request this, what diagnoses they have? Yeah, Dr. Miller's exactly right. There's a combined 40 years of data on medical aid in dying from the authorized states, 22 years from Oregon, and then um, all the other states that have passed medical aid in dying laws. And we see that the majority of patients who, who well, not necessarily the ones who request, but the patients who do receive medical aid in dying have some sort of cancer. Uh, and there has been a, a rise of patients who have ALS. Um, something else I wanted to mention that we, we see across the board, and we even, we've seen it in the first five months in Hawaii, is that many patients go through the whole qualifying process. They get their prescription in hand, and they never actually use the medication. Uh, and what we hear over and over again is that just having that medication on hand gives patients a huge sense of relief to know that if they need it, they have it there and they can use it. And if they don't need it, that's okay too, but they're in control of something of a terminal illness that they have very little control of. And um, in Hawaii in the first five months, it looks like there were three patients. Uh, according to the data, it says the total number of qualified patients who died in the first five months, um, there were three and two of them had prescriptions that, that were ingested. Um, and, and that's about right. It's usually about a third of patients who go through the whole qualifying process, who get their medication in hand, never actually use the medication. So I think there's a lot of positive ripple effects just from having a medical aid in dying law. Um, it, you know, whether or not a patient uses it, if they're, once they're qualified, it's up to them. But we also see enrollment in hospice goes up. We see patients having really great conversations with their physician because they have a language they can use. You know, they can ask for this medication, and then the, the physicians can kind of start deducting whether or not, you know, the patient is eligible for the medication um, or if there are other end-of-life options that might be more appropriate for the patient. Well, and you brought up another point that I think is bears repeating again, which is the utilization of hospice went up. Dr. Miller, in your practice, did you also see that for those people who chose to get these prescriptions, they had also seriously thought about hospice as another way to augment their experience, unfortunately, in their terminal condition? Absolutely. Um, honestly, every patient that I consulted on, um, they were either already in hospice or 
they were being referred to hospice at the same time they were referred to me. And so this concurrent process allowed you to work together with the hospice organization to make sure that the goal is to keep the patient comfortable through this process. Absolutely. Well, you have both answered a lot of questions about what has happened thus far. I want to thank Dr. Chuck Miller from Kaiser Permanente for being on and sharing his experience so far. Thank you to Samantha for calling from Maui as the Hawaii State Director of Compassion and Choices. If you would like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer was Robert Carlisle today. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will see you next week right here when we talk about medical topics of concern. Right here Monday on The Body Show. See you then.